Welcome to this episode of the Petri Dish Podcast. I'm Lindsay. I'm Rachel. And I'm Sabrea. This episode, we will be discussing the human microbiome. And recently in the press, there has been a lot of attention given to what they are dubbing the 11th organ system of the human body, the microbiota. Yeah, I'm actually super excited about this topic because I really didn't know that much about it. And the more that I kind of researched it and read about it, I just kind of found myself reading article after article. Obviously, the um, initial article that I read was the New York Times, I guess, op-ed that uh, Michael Pollan wrote Mm -hmm. um, about the fact that you can now get your microbiome tested or sequenced. I thought that article did a really good job at really highlighting all the different ways that the human microbiome can really interplay with um, human health and disease. Well, and actually, I mean, I felt like they were dropping so many statistics that were just numerically kind of mind-blowing. I think my favorite one, which I highlighted somewhere, was... One of my favorite ones is actually the the 10 to 1. Is that what you're talking about? No, actually, it's this one. That... um, in one person's mouth, scientists of the Human Microbiome Project found about 75 to 100 species. Some that predominate in one person's mouth may be rare in another person's, but at the rate at which species are being discovered, it indicates that there may be as many as 5,000 species of bacteria that live in the human mouth, which mm. is just a mind-blowing number. It's to like me. a safari in your mouth. Well, you know, actually now now that I know this fact, you know, when I'm laying in bed and I'm like too lazy to go brush my teeth, <laughs> oh, I'm no. going to be like, there's 5,000 species of, you know, who knows what in my mouth glibbing. But I feel like we're kind of going a little quickly, so let's... So talk about what exactly the microbiome is. So just for some basic terminology, just for here going forward, there's been um, the word microbiome thrown out a lot, as also as the word microbiota. They're two separate um, terms. So microbiome is the complete collection of the genes um, that are found within the the microbes living in a given environment. For instance, what we're talking about today is our body. Whereas the microbiota, microbiota, is the actual um, microbial organisms live in it, living in a given environment. Mm-hmm. Right, and so the 10 to 1 fact that you were yeah. talking, or the 10 so, to 1 statistic that you were referring to earlier was that... There are, for in, your human bo- in the human body, for every one of our cells, there are 10 uh, bacterial cells. Well, and I loved this quote that um, this Justin Sonnenberg, a microbiologist from Stanford, said that essentially the human body is an elaborate vessel optimized for the growth and spread of our microbial <laughs> inhabitants, which just kind of makes me think we're these kind of walking incubators, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for hundreds, thousands, trillions of <laughs> microbes that are just kind of cohabitating with us. And it's, it's really that cohabitation is a really key term because a lot of these relationships are really symbiotic. They need us, we need them. And um, a lot of the, you know, there's a lot of open questions in this field, but one of the things that's becoming really clear more and more is that we need to maintain positive relationships with our microbial community to stay healthy. They're important. It's not all about, you know, us versus the bugs. Yeah, because normally when you think of bacteria, you think of sickness and disease and how people take antibiotics when they're sick, but there's also such a huge portion of the microbiota that, have benefits and really understanding these benefits is um, I think a really interesting part of science and that kind of brings us to the Human Microbiome Project. So in 2007 the NIH invested over 150 million dollars to investigate to identify 
Well, I feel like in 2007, it was like money for everything, right? <laughs> it's like whatever you want to study. Exactly. Um, but now, so sorry to back up a little bit. They were um, trying to identify the microbiome and un understand the bacterial and human interactions and their relation to disease. Um, and in order to do this, they actually um, sampled over 242 healthy adults in the U.S. Uh, of the male uh, samples of the males, there was 15 different body sites sampled, and in females, there were 18 different body, um, body sites sampled. And these included areas of the skin, nose, mouth, throat, vagina, and feces. And these samples were collected over 22 months for over 5,000 total samples that they then sequenced to um, identify the species and their relative abundances. So this is a huge amount of information, right? You know, um, and, you know, scientists are still honestly trying to figure out what to do with all of it. You know, there's been a ton of data collected. If you think about how many genes are in each bacteria, I think the figure was something like, it's, it's an enormous ratio of the genetic information of all the bacteria in your body to how much genetic information you yourself have. I think it's like 99% of, if you yeah. think of your total genome, like human genome, so your DNA, right. and also add to that the microbiota, microbiome, our percent DNA is ninety is 1% of the total 100, whereas the, micro, the microbiome is 99% of that total. Which is insane. And, and trying to figure out, trying to parse apart, you know, what's the good stuff? What's the bad stuff? You know, where is it? Is it important? You know, well, how I can it change? These are all huge open questions, and there's been a lot of data collected, and not, um, not everything has been figured out yet in terms of what it all means. So I think you bring up a good point about where where are these bacteria and as I mentioned they only sampled um, 15 to 18 different body sites but in summary they came up with some statistics about where they found a number of species and genes in various areas. So as Lindsay mentioned they um, for females they looked at 18 yep. sites you said so if you look at for example um, I think with like the nose they found something like 900 species but then 30,000 genes, and if you looked at the mouth, um, 800 species and 70,000 genes. So, I mean, this is a lot of information. It's a lot of data. Mm -hmm. It's also a lot of bacteria. So, uh, <laughs> one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, our body does control it. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later, but, um, but we do, you know, keep a little bit of a control on where these communities are. So, it's on the outside of your skin. It's on the outside of the epithelium in your gut. So we do have to form barriers because if the bacteria gets into your body, like into your blood, that's when you can go septic and things go really badly. So, you know, it's not to say that bacteria is absolutely everywhere in your body. There are still sterile areas, but a lot of your surfaces, you know, where the gut, where the uh, bacteria have learned how to live, that's where they continue to hang out, um, where it doesn't hurt us too much. Right. And so, you know, we've touched upon what the microbiome is, how people have been studying it, um, and a few, a question that some might have is, you know, where does the microbiome come from? I mean, everyone's is different. Uh, why is that? And research shows that the, your microbiome essentially starts when you're born. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's a lot of, been, a lot of interest in understanding where the bacteria come from as you're born. So 
there's studies of investigating um, breast milk as the potential source of the colonizing bacteria that enter into the baby's gut. In addition, um, how the baby was delivered is another area of topic where um, C-section versus, versus normal vaginal birth um, also gives different results in right. bacterial colonization. Well, because you can imagine with vaginal birth, you know, as the baby's coming out, it's essentially kind of getting coated, as it were. <laughs> Thanks for the visual. Um, you know, with the the mother's bacteria, and so exactly. you know when you when you, as Lindsay was saying, when you go through C-section, it's a different. You, yep. you know, how does that? And I think that just vaguely, I remember reading that there was something to be said about the when they were comparing the C-section versus normal vaginal birth um, that children delivered by C-section had microbiomes similar to the mother's skin uh, microbiome, and that was kind of an interesting fact. So I just think your exposure and mm -hmm. the actual steps of exposure is something right. to be interesting about. Well, and, and interestingly, they say that roughly by the time you're three, your microbiome is pretty much set. Like, that's, you know, that's, that's like what you've healthy got. healthy individuals that don't have to go through, like, rigorous antibiotic treatments, et cetera. Yeah. Right. I mean, NPR did this really nice little, I think, like, all things considered, um, where they looked at um, how long does your microbiome, or what your microbiome looks like, how long does that stick around? And they said, you know, in healthy people, it actually changes very little. But there are things that can affect um, your microbiome as you get older. And I think there's a lot of information about beginning with the benefits. So um, I think it's good to touch on the positives of how these bacteria can be helpful in um, how humans develop. Mm -hmm. So we mentioned that um, the way a baby is born can have a huge impact on the microbiota um, that is formed before, you know, age three. Uh, another thing that can make a really big difference is breastfeeding, and obviously this is a hot topic and we're not going to go down that road. <laughs> but, um, but what's interesting about that is that human breast milk actually contains a lot of complex carbohydrates. And um, it was, you know, sort of a puzzle for a while because the um, the human infant lacks the enzymes necessary to digest these complex carbs like just on on its own. Um, however, there are bacteria that uh, can colonize the infant's gut that help digest these complex carbs in breast milk. Another interesting uh, news report was talking about parent saliva on pacifiers. And so there was actually a study in the Journal of American Academy of Pediatrics in which they were looking at whether uh, pacifier cleaning practices were linked to the risks of allergy development. And so they, were, they investigated whether parents sucking on an infant's pacifier is associated with a reduced risk of allergy development because it alters the oral flora in the child. And so... They had over 184 children, and they interviewed the parents, and they asked them how the means in which they were actually cleaning the pacifiers. So if it falls on the floor, do you run over to the sink and wash it? Or if you're somewhere, somewhere you don't have access to a sink, you just stick it in your mouth, and that's enough to clean it, and then you give it back to the kid. Um, but interestingly, they found that there was an association with parents sucking on their infant's pacifier that may reduce the risk of allergy and development. I think there's a lot of research that still needs to be done yes, to really this, identify this, this, but I think, it's, in a, in I think it's an interesting direction to go in and to really, in one avenue to investigate mm -hmm. maybe how your microbiota is formed and how it can affect your health. 
So this is actually just touching on a much wider topic that we're only really, you know, sticking a toe into today, <laughs> um, which is uh, a lot of people think that uh, Western hygiene practices are leading to higher levels of allergy and asthma, um, autoimmune diseases, um, and this is still very sort of controversial. There's not a lot of evidence thus far, but um, this whole concept is known as the hygiene hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in that study that Lindsay was just mentioning, it's sort of an indirect relationship. You know, they, they know that if the mother is um, getting her saliva on the pacifier and then giving it to the infant, they're probably transferring bacteria. But, I mean, exactly which ones, we don't know. You know, there's a lot of... There's a lot of open questions in there. It's really just association at this point. Of course. Well, and it's not just that, I mean, or I'm sorry, uh, not just Western, like the cleanliness. I mean, um, one of the things that they also touched on was how your diet can affect uh, what the microbiome flora um, that's, that's in your body. And in the New York Times op-ed, um, the Michael Pollan who had his microbiome sequenced um, it was he said he said that it was very different when compared to um, people in different regions of the world uh, for example um, that their microbiomes looked more I guess I don't know if pristine is the the right word to use there but they just had a greater diversity mm -hmm. um, and I think didn't he link it to something about the different types of food, so more, um, especially in the gut and the digestive system, right. microflora. So he's well, known right, for being a, a proponent of the eating less meat, eating more vegetables uh, movement. And so he was drawing a conclusion, he was drawing the comparison, I should say, between his uh, gut mm -hmm. microbiome and those from more, um, I suppose, not the United States societies where they eat less meat. Well, and less processed food, too. Mm -hmm. um, one of the... Um, points that he made in the article was that um, our lack of, I shouldn't say lack of fiber, but maybe I'm, us Westerners aren't getting enough fiber, mm -hmm. and that's definitely harmful to our overall microbiome. Yeah, it just changes the, um, like you said, diversity. So other factors that actually can have a huge effect on your biodiversity are treatment with antibiotics. So I know we're switching gears a little bit from diet, from diet and geography to talking about if you're sick and you're on a course of antibiotics. So I'm sure a lot of you have seen commercials for all of those probiotic yogurts, etc. But sometimes what happens is when you're on a course of antibiotics, you actually kill any of the bacteria in in your digestive system, and that can have actually um, some pretty negative effects on your health. Mm -hmm. So most, most antibiotics um, affect things that are present in, you know, a wide variety of bacteria. And some of them, you know, are actually, they were developed to, for that reason. You know, they want them to be able to work well and solve whatever medical problem you're having. But it also wipes out all of the good bacteria. You know, most antibiotics don't have any sort of discrimination between what's good and what's bad bacteria. They just stop them from growing. And so this kind of brings me to, I guess, one of the interesting topics that we chose to cover, which are uh, fecal transplants. It's about to get gross. <laughs> so, um, actually what happens in a lot of hospital settings when people are on high, a long course of antibiotics, especially um, elderly, that this diversity changes. Mm -hmm. And then a bacteria called Colostrium difficile, yeah, oh, I'm going that. to call it C. diff. Yeah. <laughs> Much easier. <laughs> um, actually takes over. So 
given the opportunity, it can then take over because all the other all the other natural occurring bacteria are less mm -hmm. um, pronounced. So now it can now flourish and it actually is associated with diarrhea as well as severe colon inflammation. And interestingly enough, it is also associated with death. So it's a pretty nasty one. It, yeah, it invades. So they, yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty bad. So well, the toxins are pretty bad. So I guess um, in the CDC it reports that out of seven. 17,000 deaths um, attributed to gastrointestinal infections, two-thirds of them are actually called by C. diff. Wow. And so there's a little bit, lately, a lot of interesting research and studies in which they are trying to use fecal transplants as the major form, right. as the major treatment. Well, and, and fecal transplants sound exactly like, I mean... So, <laughs> I mean, they are they are what you think they are. If you don't know what fecal transplants are, whatever you're thinking they are, that's probably what so, it is, which is where you take... So basically, yeah. So they actually take samples from healthy donors, and there is a very rigorous um, screening process where they make sure that you don't have any diseases that you can pass on or you don't have any harmful bacteria in your sample. And let's um, be clear, you're, they're not, like, taking feces and, like, opening up your gut and transplanting it into your body. <laughs> there's a, Usually there's some processing involved where they Isn't isolate the bacteria. Bacteria. Mashing it up in a bag. Yeah. yeah. And just I'm like... sorry, but that yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's let's just outline the actual process. So they take the sample, the fecal sample from the healthy individual that they have sufficiently screened. And actually and they screen it and it's is it normally someone that's within their family? Yes, or like someone some, they live with? Yes, so we can talk about there's another article that I think we wanted to mention later that there's some evidence about cohabitation and how okay, you yeah. have similar. But um, let's just finish yeah. This one little thing first. Um, let's get over with. <laughs> so they take the sample, they actually dilute the sample in either saline or in some cases I think milk, and then they actually literally mix it up, like blend it. And then they're going to use coffee filters or some sort of gauze as a filtering device to remove any large particulate that's, that remains, and then they will actually administer it through a, uh, a tube that they actually can insert through your nose that will go directly into your stomach or actually into your upper intestines. Additionally, they can in, they can also give you the treatment via, um, I think, enema or also colonoscopy. So, but like as crazy as this sounds, I feel like this is one of those things where doctors are sitting around and they're like, okay, what do we need? Like this person is super sick, right? Their gut bacteria is just completely shot. Well, a lot of so like, do. what do we do, right? So it's like, okay, why don't why don't we just put someone like a healthy you know, bacteria in there. And right, like, well, especially how do we, do that? we don't know exactly which bacteria at this point are the most important ones. So it's much easier, you know, instead of trying to figure out what every, every little piece is that we should put back in, give them, put everything a, give them the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Well, and, and it's one of, those, one of those things where, you know, I feel like when they sat around talking about, oh, let's mm -hmm. transfer poop from one person to another, someone in that room had to have been like, this is so crazy, it just might work. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, and the thing is, but it does work. But it, actually, I think, I I think to, the numbers, like, I cures, like... I say that there is a really good study out there, but before we get to that, that there was... So a lot of times when people have C. diff, they do course of antibiotics after antibiotics, and it just keeps and just coming back. that just makes it worse, right? It keeps coming back, and then it's not really effective. So actually, recently, uh, the first long-term study was conducted in which they looked at five different medical centers and 77 different patients who all had fecal transplants, and the patients experienced a 91% primary cure rate and a 98% uh, cure rate if there was a second infection. And um, this was very different from what they had seen with antibiotic treatments mm -hmm. in which 
the patients who had not responded to antibiotics were less likely um, to respond to a second course of antibiotics. So just in summary, they, um, they find that it's a very effective course of treatment. And I found that in 2013, the FDA actually approved fecal micro microbiota transplants as a treatment for C. diff, as That's an awesome. official treatment. So before... Congrats. <laughs> Congrats, fecal transplants. <laughs> I mean, I guess the other thing, too, is I feel like it was something that you touched upon was this kind of... Um, uh, influx of like the probiotic market and mm -hmm. how you know you turn on your TV and it's oh I can't even remember who this celebrity is what's her name Jamie Lee Curtis yeah she's like oh oh right Activia yeah. right like you <laughs> that that song gets stuck in my head anytime I see that commercial but you see her and it's like oh you know we are the probiotic is like really helping your digestive system and then there's the other one the got the she's the ESPN woman. Erin Andrews, mm -hmm. who's like running around, you know, taking her probiotics. And I feel like they are kind of pushing this, I don't know, this, not agenda, but this mm -hmm. this thing that, like, it's not even really regulated. No one really no. knows what's going on. Yeah. And it's like, oh, just eat this yogurt. And there's a lot of actual controversy. And I remember when we were talking about this at one point, we were, there was a, a test in which there was a bunch of probiotics that are out there on the commercial market tested. And it was actually a really low number that were actually containing what they were produced what they claim to be containing mm -hmm. so again it's a new market and I think with a lot of things it's a way to make money and so it's not really completely understood scientifically anyway so I think that said though a lot of these things anecdotally speaking do seem to work and you know doctors will say things like you know have some yogurt while you're on these mm -hmm, antibiotics mm -hmm. because it does seem to help you know it's just something to be aware of like you know you don't necessarily know everything you're getting but hey if it works it works mm -hmm. go for it well, and I think just overall, I think that is the the big uh, concern and issue about the microbiome. It's mm -hmm. that we have all of this information, we have all of this data, we are looking at all of these species, but we don't really know what they're doing, um, mm -hmm. how they're functioning, and, and the interplay. So, right, how one population if it can take over for whatever reason like the example of the c diff or if as you age you might be now or you change your diet you're now right. changing your uh, bacterial populations inside of you right and one thing that's really important to this balance is your own immune system so we mentioned before that a lot of these things are sort of on the surfaces but that said you know the mucosal immunity is a whole field that's you know very very um interesting in a number of disease states uh, there's a lot of things going on there but you know basically what they know and a lot of this a lot of this is in the early stages but um, what we know is that you know if your immune system is defective your uh, the bacteria can take over and if you know you're they can kind of play off of each other so for example they've done um, they've done experiments where they have these immunodeficient mice that get colitis and then if you take the bacteria from these mice and put it in a normal healthy mouse, they also get colitis, wow. even with their normal immune system functioning. So, you know, if you say, you know, there's there's all these different cases where say, you know, if you're getting run down, your immune system is kind of down, things take over. This is intuitive, I think, at this point anyway, but trying to sort of isolate what the different factors are, what the specific species are, is really difficult to do. And those experiments take a lot of money. You need you know, doing them in humans is virtually impossible. Mm -hmm. You know, we're kind of stuck with this 
just sequencing because mm -hmm. you can't, you know, yeah. there's only so much, you know, playing with giving humans bacteria you can really <laughs> do. But I also think that it comes back to the fact that, like, we're talking about, it's a community. Mm -hmm. And if one falls lower, the other, another community has the opportunity to become a higher population. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes in science, in order to do the right controls, you only want to focus on one factor at a time. And I think this question is a little bit more complicated than that, um, which is why I think they're using the mice and those different examples. Mm -hmm. uh, I also read randomly that they are actually trying to make a, um, a pig um, organ a, a pig model in which they can compare it to the human um, digestive system mm -hmm. as another form of an organism that they might be able to do studies on. Right, so I mean one of these things that even further complicates doing these studies is that different species obviously carry different bacteria too. Mm -hmm. So what's true in a mouse may not be true in a human. This is true of you know any mouse studies, but um, sort of you know there there are certain comparisons you can draw. But getting something closer to human is going to give us much more of an idea of what's going on. Well, and just in general, I mean, like I know we've said this a couple of times already, but just from person to person, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. like your microbiome is different. So what could like you said for the yogurt, like for one person might be really beneficial and for someone else it, it really you know might not work so this kind of brings up the point that we were going to talk about previously about the cohabitation and yeah. the um, living in the proximity to people and even having pets and children right how that how affects your within a cohabitation environment the my microbiotas are similar or different and um, actually there is a researcher in Colorado that does a lot of um, work to actually investigate this and he did a study in which he, their, their group looked at cohabitation of family members that share the microbiota with one, one another and their dogs. So they looked at actually More of a cat um, 159 <laughs> people, and the, out of those people, 36 of them ended up having dogs, and out of that 159, 60 had families. And they were looking at whether they could find um, if cohabitation actually had a role in having similar microbiomes or not, and they found that um, one of the interesting findings was they found that cohabitation resulted in communities of microorganisms being very similar to each other, and this was, and they were dissimilar with people who didn't live together. So, if you lived with someone, you were more likely to have a similar microbiome. Basically. So, do you think then those? So then those are the people that you would get like fecal transplants from. Right? Yeah, like often, not your dog, but I like think <laughs> usually I think the first person they turn to is if you have a spouse. Right. Mm -hmm. Yay. Yay, honey. <laughs> um, Love you. Thanks, honey. <laughs> but the other funny one, the other funny part of this story was the dog, the dog scenario. So they found that, um, they found similarities between the dog's microbiome and the human's in terms of skin contact. So there's also just the idea that um, your contact with things is also going to influence your microbiome, especially with your skin, because right. you're touching things and there's bacteria and everything everywhere. Right, and well actually then to segue into that, I feel like as someone who is incredibly OCD clean, just like with my apartment and my room, just like knowing that there's like millions of microbes kind of just <laughs> around me just makes me feel awesome but kind of like icky at the same time. Um, and I am not one who carries, you know, antibacterial soap everywhere. You know, I wash my hands, you know, after I go to the bathroom or and because, you know, we work in labs, I, I feel like I wash my hands entirely too much and I know that there's lots of talk about whether being overly clean um, in this regard with all these like you know the Purells and the mm -hmm. um, antibacterial soaps like what is that doing more harm 
than good. Right, so both with you know a lot of these antibacterial products and also just antibiotics themselves as drugs, you know, overuse is something that's been uh, luckily, you know, gaining some traction in terms of like people being aware that this is maybe not the best for us. You know, we know that our microbiome is important. If you're wiping things out, you know, what exactly is coming back up? You know, when you kill everything down to a certain point, we talked about how C. diff can sort of take over, and this can happen in a lot of uh, situations, and drug resistance is becoming a huge problem. We're not developing antibiotics as uh, as quickly as we are getting um, more and more resistant. Well, I don't think it's about not using um, antibacterial products. I right. think it's the overuse of antibacterial products Definitely. that kind of leads to this, um, or that does more harm than good, right? We're not saying that the next time you see someone in a bathroom and they don't wash their hands, you should, you know, give them a high five and be like, way to keep that microbiome diverse. But I think it's also the argument that there is, there's not a lot of evidence that says that antibacterial soaps are any better than just, just wash, washing right. your hands. And, you know, I feel like my mom is going to be really proud when, when <laughs> and if she hears this, but, you know, the rule of thumb is when you're washing your hands, you should sing the happy birthday song to yourself because I think that's more or less 30 seconds, mm -hmm. and that's how long yep. you should be washing your hands yep. with soap and water. And that's actually like FDA suggested, CDC suggested. Sing it slowly. So. <laughs> Sing it twice if you feel the need. Yes. Um, and another thing to keep in mind is, you know, if you have a medical need for taking antibiotics, take them for sure. If they're, you know, if they're prescribed by your doctor and you really need them, uh, of course, take them. There's a reason they were developed in the first place. But what's really important, especially regarding some of the things we've talked about with drug resistance, is take the full course of your antibiotics. It does mm -hmm. not matter if you feel better. Take them all because you don't want to give any of the resistant bacteria an unnecessary advantage by stopping early. Exactly. That's a really good point. So we've covered a lot of some interesting things that have come up with all the new publicity that the microbiome is getting. So I just want to maybe wrap up with talking about where we think it's going and what still needs to be done. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, a lot still needs to be done. I of think course. that, well, one thing that might hinder a lot of it being done is the fact that there's just not enough money um, for this kind of research anymore. Um, I think you said in 2007 yep. there was, how much money was So it was like, I think around $150 million. So I guess you, the just the human the human microbiome project was kind of two phase. So the initial phase was to gather all this immense amount of information and sequence data, mm -hmm. and that's great. We have all these now databases that we can now go back to and uh, make connections with. But now the second part is really looking at mechanism. Well, none and what right. it does. Right, and now it has gone from 146 million dollars. I mean, down to 15 million dollars. Well, is, yeah, I think they're also um, asking now that since now they have this plethora of information now researchers, researchers can write their own independent grants and they're hoping that the money will come from those. It, it, it seems that what they're hoping. Right. I mean, and well, and just in general with the science of it, you know, there's, um, scientists are really trying to find a standardized way to really look at all this information. Well, I mean, they, they tried to find a standardized way to collect all the information and, mm -hmm. you know, everyone kind of tried to follow this, you know, kind of protocol of how to collect it, when to collect the information. I mean, the the species and, and things like that. Um, and now, you know, Lindsay, like you were saying, it's more, it's now it's like, what are they doing? How are they doing this? How are they functioning? And I think that will actually be incredibly beneficial because even though 
there is all this data, and I know we've said this, I feel like a couple of times, we still don't really know what is going on. And we don't even know, scientists don't even have um, a solid definition for what a healthy microbiome is, but that they know that a diverse microbiome is better than mm-hmm. um, a less diverse one. And I think just some, even just, we've touched on very few topics that they're also making connections with, but I think there's a lot to be learned about how it rea- how it interacts with your, your body and human disease, and I think there's a, a really good amount of direction that can be taken. Right, and so now we know that instead of just one being, we are, we are one being carrying <laughs> hundreds of trillions of microbes. <laughs> Do you even know who you are anymore? (laughs) So we hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Petri Dish Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at thepetridishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also visit our blog for resources and additional information about the microbiome and other topics we've covered at thepetridishpodcast.tumblr.com.